In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. This is the 18th Sunday after Pentecost, and we are continuing in chapter 17 of Luke's Gospel. And we're continuing this focus on faith or faithfulness, which can become a kind of a philosophical exercise, uh, even a theological exercise, without having uh, some real examples of what this looks like in life. And that's what the scriptures do. They don't offer us philosophical definitions. They show us or give us a picture of what faithfulness looks like. And remember, we've been talking about how faithfulness uh, is more than this um, idea in the mind, but that it's lived out in loyalty. And that this is another way that we can uh, translate that word faith is as loyalty. So this concept of loyalty, of Faithfulness is exemplified for us in the life of Ruth. Uh, the life of Ruth, whom we have here um, in the icon with her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, is living in the time of the judges. So you'll remember that uh, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And the next to the youngest, Joseph, is the one that leads them down during a time of famine into Egypt. And while in Egypt, they... Uh, multiply so that these 12 sons become 12 tribes and those 12 tribes together become the nation of Israel and after several hundred years they're much too large to be dwelling in Egypt and the Lord hears their cries as they become servants and slaves and he leads them up out of Egypt so now these uh, 12 sons become 12 tribes and this great nation of Israel is led out by the Lord's prophet Moses Moses leads them up out of Egypt uh, through the wilderness to the edge of the promised land, the land promised to Abraham. And Joshua leads them into the promised land. And then once there, there are several hundred years where the nation of Israel is led by judges. There are many of these judges, and they're kind of a, a mixed group. Uh, they seem to be kind of warlords, prophets, strong men and women. Uh, the time of the judges is very messy. The people don't really seem to be worshiping uh, the Lord. They seem to be following continually after the idols around them. And this is a time when the Lord has instructed them that they are meant to be in the promised land, that this is the land that they're supposed to be taking through strength, and uh, that they are not supposed to be mixing with the tribes around them. They're not supposed to be mixing with the other people. Now, it's important for us to note because uh, our minds um, and our present culture become so confused we um, have these concepts of race which are not in the scripture. There's no such thing of ra as race in Holy Scripture. And so this isn't a matter of them uh, mixing in other races. It's not a matter even of ethnicity. The concern of the Lord isn't that they um, not be uh, pure as an ethnic group. The question is, um, who are they worshiping? And so um, the Lord knows, as we know, that who you marry is really important. And if you're marrying somebody who's worshiping a foreign god, it's likely that you're going to go off and worship that foreign god as well. So the Lord instructs them not to marry with these other wives so that their worship of the Lord uh, would maintain. And so Elimelech, when he leaves during this time of famine with his family and he goes into the land of Moab, the readers at the time of Judges till today should look at what Elimelech has done and kind of shake our head and say, he's going to get what he deserves, right? He has um, gone away from the Lord. He has given up the land that the Lord promised him, and he has allowed his sons to marry Moabites. And the Moabites, if you remember, are descendants of Lot, which is a really awful, messy thing if you go back and read that history. So um, Elimelech, when he dies and his sons die, 
upon reading this, we should be kind of shaking our heads and saying, yeah, he got what he deserved. That's what the Lord said would happen if you do this. And so Elimelech is suffering the consequences of his sin. Now these uh, Moabites, uh, Orpah and Ruth, have um, taken a kind of allegiance to the family uh, and to Naomi. Uh, but Naomi says to them, I have nothing to offer you. There's nothing that I have. I have no property. I have no money. I have no sons. There's no way for me to get sons to offer you. And so the way in which you and I were linked to one another through my sons is gone. You have no more reason to be loyal to me. And uh, Orpah and Ruth uh, both uh, say, no, we, we have promised to be loyal to you and we'll do so. And then Naomi gives one more push and she says, no, really, I have nothing to give you. And Orpah says, okay, you're right, and leaves. And so this is often what happens in loyalty, right? Is there's an understanding of a, of a quid pro quo, right? Of a give and a take, of a contract. And so you give me this and I give you that. Uh, but that's not the kind of loyalty that we see in Ruth. Ruth hears what Naomi says, hears that there's nothing that Naomi can give, and yet she maintains loyalty. She says, I have vowed, and I will be with you. Only death will part us. I will be in the land of your fathers. I will worship your God. So she makes and she keeps this uh, sacred vow of loyalty to Naomi and to the Lord. And this is what loyalty looks like. It's not if and when you give me something, but it's out of love, it's out of compassion, it's out of uh, the, the unity and out of promise, out of keeping one's word, uh, that Ruth is exemplifying what loyalty uh, looks like. And this is the kind of loyalty that um, we are considering that we're thinking about when we see uh, Jesus walking through the land of the Samaritans, because the Samaritans are also kind of these distant cousins, right? The northern kingdom of Israel who's been taken over and broken apart and renamed uh, the Samaritans. And so they are these cousins who have stopped worshiping in Jerusalem. They're a messy business. And we read that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Now it's very important that we see that because uh, we need to be reminded of the purpose of the gospel. Right? The purpose of the gospel is for Christ to sacrifice himself, right? to offer himself as a sacrifice for all. He is on his way to Jerusalem to become the Passover lamb. Right? We say this every Sunday. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Every Sunday we keep the Passover. This is a Seder meal that we keep every Sunday. We are um, offering and we are giving thanks for the once offered Passover lamb. And it's important that we understand what kind of a sacrifice Christ is. Sometimes, again, because of our blood cult ideology, we start to think about uh, sacrifices being out of anger, that somehow the Lord is angry at his people, and so he's going to have to take it out someplace, and he's going to take it off on this sacrificial offering. Yet that isn't what we read in the Passover story at all. We don't read anything about the Lord being mad at the Passover lambs. We don't even really read about them being killed. There's really nothing about that except that their bones aren't broken. There's nothing about anger or sin being put on them. In fact, if the sin of the people was put on the Passover lamb, it wouldn't be a pure sacrifice, right? If the lamb held the sins of the people, it wouldn't be able to make them pure. But what happens? The blood of the Passover lamb is marked on the doorposts of the nation of Israel to show what? To show their loyalty to God. The blood of the Passover lamb marks them as loyal to God. They are 
uh, belonging to the Lord. And it marks them apart from their neighbors to say, we belong to the Lord. We are loyal to him, no matter what comes. And this is what Jesus for, does for us. He offers his blood as the sacrifice, as the Passover lamb. And his blood that is poured upon us marks us as God's own. It marks our loyalty to the Father. We too are marked with the blood of Christ like the Passover lamb so that our homes and our families are marked as loyal, belonging to the Lord. And so we want to remember this when we hear that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Otherwise, we see all these little healing stories as kind of these little tiny kind of separate incidents. And we might think that Jesus came to, to heal lepers rather than to save the whole world through his blood. Yes, he does many acts of healing, but his purpose is salvation. His purpose is to mark us for eternal life. And so when he's walking along and he heals these Samaritans, it is on the way. It's an on the way act that he does. And so these uh, lepers, uh, due to their contagion, mark a distance from Christ and they ask for mercy, which indicates that they understand that they are bearing the consequences of sin. You notice that they don't ask for healing. They ask for mercy. They understand the consequences and they say, Lord, have mercy upon us. And the Lord not only has mercy upon them, but heals them of their disease. Although, like so many of the healing stories, we don't see Jesus healing in some kind of a uh, ritualistic, stylized manner, right? Every healing seems to be distinct and done in a distinct way. Sometimes he touches the people he heals. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he puts spit on them. Sometimes he doesn't. In this case, he never even says anything about healing. He just says, go to the priests which is what's going to be required for them to come back into community, right? To come back into fellowship with their people, that they go to the priests and that they be examined to show that the contagion is gone. So the Lord is saying, I forgive you, you have received mercy, and now you can be rejoined into your family. You can come back into members of the family. But one responds the right way, the way that we're responding this morning. When we come together here, we are doing the one thing required of Christians, and that is to give thanks to God and to worship Him. We acknowledge all that God has done for us. We give thanks to Him. We say, you have provided for me. You have given me life. You've given me family and friends and food and clothes and all these things. And we are marking all with gratitude the gifts of God. And we come here this morning full of gratitude, full of thanksgiving to worship the Lord for all that He has done for us. And in our worship of Him, in our gratitude and thanksgiving, He gives us even more. He marks us again and fills us with His, his Spirit and, and heals us. And this is the kind of God we have that when we come to thank Him, He gives us even more of what He's promised. He continues to fill us even in our gratitude and in our thanksgiving. And that's what this one Samaritan does. He comes and He lays down. He, he lowers Himself, right? He exposes the back of His neck. He submits himself to Jesus and he says, um, thanks be to God. And Jesus says, your faith made you well. Wait a minute. He had already been well. He had already been made whole. So what kind of being made well is he talking about here? The being made well is not just coming back into relationship with his family. His being made well is coming back into relationship with God. 
It's one thing to be examined by the priest and be let back into your earthly home. It's quite another to be examined by God himself and be brought back into a heavenly home, into a heavenly dwelling where we are made one again with the family of God. And this is the healing that Christ has come to make as the Passover lamb to mark us as God's own forever, to mark our hearts and our minds and our families so that we're not coming into an earthly home, but into a heavenly one. And then he says, your faith has made you whole. That faith, that loyalty to God, that expression of faithfulness and thanksgiving that the Samaritan exemplifies when he comes back and he worships. And that's what we're doing today. We are coming back to worship, to show our loyalty, to show our thanksgiving, to show our being made and marked as Christ's own, dwelling with him forever. And because we cannot lose those, those metaphors of faithfulness and loyalty, St. Paul adds even more in his letter to St. Timothy. He says, when we are faithful, when we are loyal to God, we are loyal to him as soldiers, as athletes, and as farmers. Which are beautiful metaphors. The soldier is disciplined, and our faith must be disciplined. The athlete has self-control. He doesn't just have the rules of the game on his outside that he has to be reminded of, but he wears them on the inside. He's internalized the rules of the game, and he is, he is exercising within the confines of those rules. He has self-control the way that we are supposed to have the rules of the Holy Spirit, the law of God, in our hearts and our minds as we um, run this race. And then as farmers who work hard, who uh, every morning and every night, uh, day in and day out, are about the work of God. And so with this uh, discipline and self-control, this hard work of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer, we too are showing our loyalty. And it is hard work, and it does require discipline. And it certainly isn't the kind of Christianity that sometimes gets described where uh, we say one prayer, we uh, are baptized, and then we're done, uh, we're, we're saved, and then that's it, there's, there's nothing more. This isn't the way that the scripture talks about our salvation at all. What does he say to, to St. Timothy? Does he say, sit back and relax and enjoy the ride? Does he say, you've been saved, don't worry about it? He says, endure. Endure for everything for the sake of the elect. And then he says, if, that wonderful theological phrase, if, if we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So the question is still open. St. Paul writing to the church, writing to Timothy is saying, the, the verdict is still out on us. If we endure, if we are faithful, if we live with him, if we die with him. And then we see that this ongoing relationship is essential because he even goes deeper and he says, if we deny him, again, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the church. He's saying, if we deny him, this is an open question. And this to me is a wonderful comfort. Some people think it's a comfort to think, oh, if I've said the prayer and I've been baptized, um, I'm saved and that's it, it's all over with. But that would seem to be an entering into a contract where my free will and the possibility of my being faithful is somehow gone. That faithfulness is still open to each of us. That question of loyalty is open to each of us every day. And we every day are called to examine our hearts and minds to decide if we are going to be loyal to him. And he says, if we deny him, he will deny us. He will deny us. 
That should be a comfort. We are alive. We are active. We have an opportunity to show our loyalty to God. And he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. The Lord will not deny himself. He will not deny his love. His love, his mercy, his grace are steadfast and sure, and the door is always open. His love and grace is always flowing. He will never deny himself. He has won the battle. We only have to choose to be faithful and loyal to him. For he cannot deny himself. Well, Ruth is four chapters long. We only get like one chapter. I checked the lectionary. They don't include the second half of the book. So we've got to talk about it, right? This is one of the best books in all of Scripture. You've got to go home this week and read all four chapters of Ruth, right? Read this story. Ruth is a good soldier. She is disciplined under Naomi as her mother-in-law. When Naomi brings her back to Bethlehem, which we should prick our ears up, oh, Bethlehem, right, where Jesus was born, Naomi says to her, we have a family member here named Boaz, and you need to go to his field and glean after his harvesters. And Ruth is obedient and disciplined. In self-control, she works hard all day long, and the people in the field recognize her discipline and self-control. They recognize her faithfulness. And Boaz recognizes it. And he says, make sure that she is safe and make sure that you, she has plenty to glean. Right? She's picking up those little bits of, of wheat that they've left. The harvesters haven't picked up. So she's picking up one head of wheat at a time, right? And, and holding them uh, in, her, in her basket or even in her cloak that she wears. And she's carrying all of this wheat. And Boaz recognizes her and Naomi says, this is a blessing from God because Boaz is a member of our family and he is the one who can redeem us. He can redeem us. What does that mean? That means that the family, the opportunity for Elimelech's family to continue had been broken. And in ancient Israel, this is a horrible thing for a family's line to be broken, to be cut off from Israel. And it was the duty, <coughs> excuse me, of the nearest male relative to do his part to marry a woman within that brokenness of the family to raise up children for that father who had died. In other words, Boaz would have children with Ruth and their name would be Elimelech's. Think about that. Raising a child, giving birth and raising a child for somebody else's name to preserve their family. That's an incredible act of love and of generosity. And Boaz is obedient and loyal to God, and he and Ruth have children and raise them up to redeem, to bring back from death the line of Elimelech. And that redemption is so powerful and wonderful that the children of Ruth and Boaz in the line of Elimelech are Obed and Jesse and King David. So they become the grandparents of King David who has promised that his line will never end and the fruit of that line is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
so that the loyalty of Ruth not only brings about the redemption of Elimelech's family, but the redemption of the whole world. The whole world. We are redeemed by their loyalty and their faithfulness. May, be, may we be loyal this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen.